liberal lies, cover-ups and side hustles, Morrison selling gas at climate conference, my name is Cleo, little girl saved. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am joining you, my name is Ben Davison, I am joining you from the rainy, rainy state of Victoria and unfortunately today I am not joined here at home by the great, the glorious, the always wonderful Van Vadim because my sunshine has taken itself back to Sydney and is now bathing the city the Harbour City in sunshine. How are you, Van? Oh, darling. I mean, I may not be the sun, but you can certainly read by me at night time. (laughs) I I, I sort of tortured that out in the end, didn't I? You did, you did, (laughs) and I don't think I helped at all. It's been kind of a rough week, everyone. So Ben and I did have some lovely days together and we did some amazing uh, regional Victorian tourism. Uh, I certainly recommend anybody who's feeling a bit depressed about lack of progress on climate action and thinking that it's all a bit overwhelming. I seriously recommend a trip out to beautiful Lau Lau in uh, the highlands of the central highlands of Victoria um, and the Lau Lau Falls, which is where Ben and I went. We did some great hiking, looked over the, the reservoir and the, we're in the beautiful forest and the beautiful streams and the, and the waterfalls, which are glorious. And behind all of this magnificent scenery are some of the 350 wind turbines that have been installed over the course of the Andrews Labor government in Victoria and it's just you just get your hope back you just go yes it's possible to save this planet we can do it renewable energy is happening Uh, it is being built there are governments who are willing to do the right thing and just that beautiful mise-en-scene of the the lovely green landscape and the flowing water and the clean air with the wind turbines in the background I seriously I took like a thousand photos because I was like this is the paradise I want to live in it's so beautiful we also went out to Dalesford to the markets uh, in order to support the local jam and bread economy (laughs) of Victoria maybe a bit too much uh, Benny and I but uh, it was brilliant all the same we went to Torquay which was just marvelous and walked around the beaches there a big shout out to Fisho's, the fish restaurant, where we had a, like amazing lunch and they were so nice to us there and it was quite the treat from my generous partner, Ben. Um, thank you very much. And the food was just magnificent. We can't recommend food. that enough. Really? And we also got some fine eat and done in uh, Ballarat with Ben's mum, which was fabulous. So turns out, everybody, uh, that Victoria really is God's own country and I say that as somebody who's been in Sydney for five months. Um, although I do love it here very much and it has its appeal, it's just not as cold. So, yes. you know. Ah, uh, well, and for the good people of Gippsland, I'm sure we'll come and see you shortly as well. But, Van, I want to dive into it because we've got a lot to cover. There's so much going on in the world. There's a lot right going now. on. I want a lot to, going on. I want to give, firstly, a shout-out uh, to Australian unions for their win for hairstylists this week. I actually had my second haircut of the year last week, just before you arrived home, so that I'd look a nice and schmick for you. And uh, it happened to time with a 2.5% pay increase for hairstylists on the 1st of November. And unions, that is the Australian Workers' Union, the SDA and Hairstylists Australia, uh, winning an extra $92 a week for hairstylists who work weekends uh, to be phased in over the course of the next two years. Such a great time to join your union. You know, there are unions for everyone. You can join 
AustralianUnions.org.au slash wow. I just thought, you know, that's a nice uh, that's a nice little union story coinciding with my uh, second haircut of the year. I do promise the hairstylists who are listening out there to have more haircuts now that we're coming out of lockdown. They absolutely run off their feet, I think, at the moment. It was hard to get a booking. I can imagine. I can imagine. I uh, I have desperately missed the specialisation of hairdressers over lockdown, as anyone who has seen my regrowth uh, would understand. I had that that moment of real industrial appreciation uh, when I decided to go blonde a couple of months ago. It took me three days, three days, and I was like, this is what we pay professionals for, and thank you, hairstylists, for your training, for your professional professionalism and in fact for your very existence and I cannot wait to see you again. <laughs> well let's dive into the rest of the show uh, because we need to talk about the liberal lies, cover-ups and side hustles. I mean what what a week, what a week in Australian politics and what an absolute expose of the liberal lies, cover-ups and side hustles that have been going on. And then let's start Let's start with the big kahuna himself, uh, and I use kahuna for the Hawaiian context, Scott Morrison, who has, of course, been caught out lying to French President Macron, has then leaked text messages, which I think his spinners must have thought were going to show that he didn't lie, but in actual fact do indicate that Macron was concerned about the deal, but Morrison didn't actually engage with him about it. So, you know, effectively had lied to him. And it's now been revealed that the US didn't know France hadn't been told either. And just today, we've seen Malcolm Turnbull really just lay the boot in, and you know, of course, Scott Morrison lies. He's lied to me on multiple occasions. I cover that in my book. You know, he's damaging the office of the prime ministership. Uh, our trustworthiness is a national security asset, uh, and this damages that. I mean, Van, what does this say about Australia's place in the world? More importantly, what does it say about what we as Australians can expect from our prime minister? Oh, look, it's shockingly bad. And this is the thing. Like people like Sean Kelly have written before about the thing about Morrison is that he he's known to be a liar. Like this is understand like an understood element of his political makeup. That he his his commitment is to the now. Like he's not a long as anybody in this country knows, he's not a long-term vision politician at all. He is a what can I do to get myself out of trouble at this precise second politician. It's the reason why he doesn't really consider of climate action as a pressing issue, because he only lives in the now. And if what's convenient in the now is to tell everybody the black is white and up is down and the sea is made of cake, that's exactly what he'll do. So we have this situation where, you know, we spent, we committed to, sorry, we committed to a $90 billion, $90 billion contract to buy these submarines from the French. Very complex deal because they wanted to, the Liberals wanted to keep their mitts on uh, Christopher Pine's then seat in South Australia, which is, of course, where these were going to get made. And so there was all this, you know, tricky negotiating with the French. The French were going to build them, but they were going to build them here. So the jobs would be kept here. So 
the rest of it. I mean, and that's an enormous amount of money, like $90 billion. And up until the last minute, uh, Morrison was misleading the French, believing that the contracts weren't going to be fulfilled. And, you know, considerable resources and logistics that have been devoted from the French end. And and at the same time, Morrison was negotiating the secret deal, a secret deal with the United States and the UK. And Joe Biden, the president of the United States, has said, this is news to me, like France is an unbelievably important ally to the United States. There would be no United States without France. The dead giveaway is the big Statue of Liberty uh, in, um, in New York, which was paid for and supplied by the French in recognition for how tight that alliance is. The, the French backed the Americans in when they revolted against the British. Like, you know, Thomas Jefferson was the ambassador to Paris. Like there's this massive shared intellectual and political tradition between uh, France and the United States. And Biden was clearly horrified that Morrison sort of, you know, exposed Biden to his, like, to Morrison's chicanery. I'm trying to think of words well, that French, don't have swear words the, in them to explain the, the what's French going on. The French recalled their ambassador from the United States, which I think was, if not the first time, certainly, you know, a very rare occurrence for that to happen. The, the French ambassador did return to the United States um, Prior to the ambassador, French ambassador coming back to Australia, but it's it's also it's also geopolitically really difficult, and because France, you know, France is a Pacific power. Like it, you know, there are there are parts of France, and they are parts of France. They are legally parts of France. The people there are French citizens. They they vote in French elections. That that exist in the Pacific, and. Our geopolitical positioning, the United States' geopolitical positioning, has been to include France. So now Morrison, you know, has demonstrated a lack of trustworthiness and compounded it, just just incompetently piling lie and spin on top of lie and spin. It, it's it's a troubling troubling thing. I think domestically, we've always kind of gone, "Oh, politicians lie," but. When world leaders lie to each other about things like, you know, major arms deals and national security, that's a that's a potentially dangerous situation. It's a really dangerous situation and it costs Australia in the, the long term. Like this is a military contract. It's a military contract with one of our closest allies that Scott Morrison has just shredded with no consideration or regard, like with and and no sort of adult conception of what that means. Like, what does it mean when one of the the power brokers of the EU and the EU are the new superpower of Europe? Like, be there's a reason why. Um, like the Russians, for example, are so heavily involved in campaigning in uh, things like Brexit yeah. and getting behind these sort of anti-EU campaigns. In Poland. In, and- yeah, in, in Poland and everywhere else. The reason why the Russians do that is because the EU is more powerful than Russia will ever be again. Right? Yeah. As a trading block, as a military block, as an alliance of nations, like the the supranational state of the EU dwarfs Russia. It keeps Russia in a box. 
And that's why Russia has a direct investment in things like Brexit. Brexit was a Russian victory, you know, like the 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 money, the social media campaigning support, the rest of it. Like we know that that yeah. happened, and we know why, you know. So, and I'm sure, sure, I'm sure Ben would love to tell you all about, you know, naval placements and other military strategy that goes on in that particular arrangement. Well, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there are naval bases, French naval bases that both America and Australia use in the Pacific um, and, and vice versa. And that's, that's a relationship that goes back, as you say, a very, very long time now. Uh, it, it's hard to see how this recovers. And, of course, as, as you say, there are repercussions here in Australia. There are repercussions for jobs. You know, Australia doesn't have... Uh, nuclear facilities in South Australia. Uh, Malcolm Turnbull made this point that if you wanted nuclear propulsion submarines, the French do actually build those as well. Uh, And in fact, they're safer because they don't use weapons-grade uranium, which the American nuclear submarines do. We've talked about the nuclear submarines before on the show. Uh, And that you could have had an adult relationship which was between leaders around, okay, we want nuclear propulsion, not diesel propulsion. France, you've got the contract to build it. America, you've already got the weapons system contract. Uh, We're going to need help to get the capacity in Australia so that we can have the jobs that we need out of this defence contract. You know, you could have had an adult leader-to-leader conversation, brought people together and got an outcome where everybody wins. Instead... We've now got an outcome where there's actually a lot of fuzz around what even it is we've agreed with the US and the UK. I've read conflicting articles that say the UK believes they'll be providing the tech and doing the jobs and doing the work uh, for the Australian deal. I've seen the US say it's providing the tech and doing most of the work there in themselves. Like, it's it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. And it does compound, as you say, Morrison has just lied and lied and lied to the Australian public so many times. It It's now... It's now a global phenomenon, you know. The lie from the Shire is now a global phenomenon. Well, people on Twitter are calling him the pariah from the Shire because you can <laughs> see in that humiliating video, you know, Marika Hardy was saying there's just so much of so many of these videos of no one wanting to talk to Scott Morrison. And, like, people, that's dangerous. That's dangerous to us. Like, to be alienated from our allies for no reason apart from the fact that Scott Morrison just thinks he can do, like, that that he can, he thinks he can make it up as he goes along is the problem. You know, because in Australia if he makes it up when he goes along, he gets favourable coverage from liberal, liberal, like, liberal favourable media. I mean, we know that's true. There are journalists who don't ask uh, Morrison the questions they should because of the publications they work for. That's the kind of country that we live in and that's, you know, I trust Australians to be smart enough to be able to see through that and that when the facts are reported to be able to make up their own minds about things like competency and responsibility. But the problem is that if people aren't hammering him, um, you know, and creating a context Mm. in which he has to account for his decisions and show leadership, it takes a long time for our citizens and for the rest of the world to get the information that this guy is an incompetent, shonky mess. 
Well, let's talk about some accountability and let's talk about getting to the facts of the matter. It's something that's happened closer to home in the state where you are at the moment. It, uh, is obviously Gladys's appearances, uh, Gladys Berejiklian's appearances at ICAC have opened all sorts of cans of worms. And I talked on the weekend wrap uh, about the love circles and Daryl McGuire. And of course, we covered uh, Daryl and Gladys go to ICAC in episode nine. This is episode 62. So this is how long this saga has been going on. But the new New South Wales Premier, Dom Perrottet, has ordered a review of grants programs after Gladys revealed at ICAC that the coalition just throws money at seats to win elections. Now, this is, this is the kind of um, masterful cover-up that only a truly Machiavellian politician can pull off. Where Dominic Perrottet, right, he, he's now the Premier, but he, he didn't just fall out of the sky. It's not like they picked him up off the street and said, you'll be the Premier now. He was the Treasurer, he was a Minister, he was part of the Gladys Berejiklian government, a key member of that government, and heir apparent for some time, right? <laughs> so him ordering a full review of programs, it's like all he has to do is open his own cabinet drawer, right? Because he was there. He was in the expenditure. He's mentioned in the phone calls. Gladys actually says in some of this recorded testimony presented to ICAC, or this recorded evidence, oh, yeah, Dom just does whatever I tell him to do. Yeah, he's no problem. Yeah. I'm like, oh, well, that's leadership, isn't it? He's very good at bowing, scraping and kneeling. These are not leadership qualities, people. These are not what we want. Don't like lies and we don't like sycophants and I just, it's just, it's disgraceful. I tell you why it's getting me so angry. Like I shared some stuff on Facebook the other day. Somebody brought to my attention that there's a Liberal Party candidate running for council in the Blue Mountains, right? So it's a local government election. And this Liberal Party candidate who's like, some no-name from the community, yeah. right? Yeah. But who's liberal all the way, had put out some Facebook posts going, oh, you know, like elderly citizens in the in this council area are really doing it tough and blah, 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 you know, it's all somebody else's fault and I'll stand up for this. And um, and there was this photo, this curiously professional-looking photo of very photogenic old people looking very concerned, staring at a piece of paper. And, of course, somebody's seen this social media post because it's a candidate's page and gone, are they from the local electorate? And this Liberal writes back, oh, yes, certainly they are. And, of course, the next post, somebody has looked up, has reverse image searched this picture and it's from Alame, the stock footage site. So, you know, who knows who these photogenic old people could have been? They could have been French for all we know. Gosh, imagine. But... This candidate has a bit of form. Like this candidate has appeared in photographs by other Liberal candidates pretending to be, you know, randos in the electorate and whatever. And this is it's just blatant lying. And the reason why this blatant lying, and you might go, oh, look, it's not a big deal, it's a council election. Yeah, it's a big deal because it speaks to political culture and character and integrity. And when the Prime, the prime Minister is not just the Prime Minister of this country, he's also the leader of the Liberal Party, yeah. you know, and... And Paul Keating has this very famous quote, which is you change you change the leader, you change the country, right? Like that's how important leadership is in terms of establishing values and, and setting a culture. And if you have a leader of a major political party like Scott Morrison flagrantly lying, 
diddling our allies, you know, playing silly buggers with the President of the United States, even though all of this stuff is recorded, everything is recorded. All this is, you know, governments run professional monitoring yeah. like, of their representatives because that's in the interest of national security to know what's going on and for everything to be analysed. If you have a Prime Minister who acts that way, every person in that party is given licence to act that way. Well, and it makes me really, really angry. No, Ben, I'm mid-rant. Let me keep going. <laughs> it makes me angry because democracy actually needs the two major groupings to to battle one another, like yeah. you, you based on ideas, like, though, right? Like based be- on ideas, like the battle is supposed to be: Are we going in a left direction or are we going in a right direction? What yeah. does that look like? How do we speak to people who could go either way to ensure this is what a majority of people want? Like it's actually really important. Old school Marxists in the audience, let's have a bit of dialectical reasoning, and that's what Marx is talking about: thesis, antithesis, synthesis. You know, it's in that argument between the two great ideological sides that the people get to make a decision about what they want society to look like based on but if yeah. you can't agree basic facts if if the truth if if you if you destroy the concept of truth then you never have to make an argument right like isn't that what they're really doing yeah and this is what's happening because the reality is that we have lived in the consequence of center right decision making for 40 years you know the reagan revolution and thatcherism had a massive impact on what we expect a government to do and what it to look like like that's the legacy of neoliberalism and you know and we've and that experiment hasn't worked nothing the wealth did not trickle down trickle down economics is a lie we know that we know that i wrote about this in my piece for the guardian the other day that when our economies were being shaped in this sort of reagan like thatcherist model um you know which which began under fraser in this country it did begin under fraser that's when this kind of stuff really started and then took off and then the rest of the world was doing it and you know the social democratic parties were like no we can make market economies work with our ideology and that turned out to be an error but we're in this situation where working people were told oh look the laws of supply and demand mean that when your labor's in demand you'll be able to put in claim you don't need unions yeah. you'll be able to put in pay claims and get paid more money because your labor will be worth more money well we're seeing all over the world what governments and corporations are prepared to do to not raise wages use prison labor which is what they're talking about in britain um have like child labor laws relaxed in in the united states where they have 14 year olds working in hospitality jobs until 11 o'clock at night is suddenly um legal in wisconsin and just awful on every level and in australia this ridiculous strawberry picking lottery where if you're a fruit picker rather than everybody getting a raise you get a basically a lottery ticket to see if you win money for having that job like it's completely nuts and that rightward direction people have lost faith with it people don't like the economy that centre-right values led us to and there should be a democratic correction around that now is the time for us to be talking about social democracy and socialism and a big state and local procurement and targeted job creation and full employment all these traditional left-wing democratic projects but the right don't want to give up power they don't actually want to subject their ideas to the electorate so it's just lies and stock photos and screwing with our allies and talking total garbage and, then, and it's breaking down. And then, Thank you. Round finished. <laughs> well, look, I mean, you're, you're not wrong, right? So the, 
they, they don't want to give up power. I mean, the, one of the other examples I wanted to bring up today was the the example of Liberal Senator for New South Wales, Holly Hughes. And I'm going to give a little bit of context about this because this really goes to your point, right? Like the, there's, a, there's an element here where the leadership and the concept of leadership within the Liberal Party has broken down so much that... And it's filtered right through, through to local councils, like you've said, but also to these backbench senators. So Holly Hughes was the the sixth person on the ticket at the 2016 election, right? She was not in a winnable spot, but they gave her a gig at the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, right? And then, of course, we had all that citizenship scandal stuff and Fiona Nash lost her gig and in New South Wales, the countback process and Holly Hughes would have won election. The High Court said, well, you can't because you've got a Commonwealth paid job. So what does Holly Hughes do? She spends the next two years, she quit the AAT, spends the next two years making herself number one on the ticket. Not spends the next two years doing policy work and building community and doing all the things that maybe we'd want political leaders to do, just getting herself to number one on the ticket and maintaining quite a lucrative consulting arrangement, which... As a senator for New South Wales, she has continued. So senators are paid $249,000 a year. That's including an electorate allowance. They're given a car for their own use, however they like, as well as personal phone and internet expenses. They're paid allowances for travel, overnight stays, studying, everything. Like it's, it's not just lucrative, it's lucrative and low cost, right, to be a senator. She has continued to use a trust of which she is the only beneficiary and she is the only shareholder to deliver consulting services to a for-profit biofuel company. Now, she claims... Consulting services. Yeah, consult as a senator. So Senator of New South Wales is rocking up to meetings, rocking up to meetings on behalf of a fuel company to, I don't know, to negotiate on their behalf, to to give them advice, to who knows? Who knows exactly what she's doing? But she it, she has declared it. It's clearly there. And it, and it comes on the back, of course, of Christian Porter using a blind trust to raise funds for his defamation lawsuit. Now, Holly Hughes, Senator for New South Wales, and consultant says she hasn't received anything yet. And the implication when you read what she's saying is that she's basically banking money in this trust for when she's no longer in parliament. Now, I don't have a problem with people, you know, having some money once they, you know, when they need money and people need a job, they should have a job, right? But the idea that our parliamentarians are doing side hustle jobs and banking it in a trust because that's a nice little loophole that lets them do it is is outrageous. It's an undermining. I literally, democracy. I cannot, I, I can barely even speak about this because I'm just so angry. Like I'm just so angry. It was a sublime piece of reporting from Paul Carp from The Guardian that blew the lid on this. And yeah. But at the same time I can admire the journalism and just be totally enraged at the content. Ben, what does a senate, senator earn? What's the just before we talk about all the allowances and everything else, oh, two, what do they earn? 211000 but 
a senator also gets 38000 as an electorate allowance. Now, when I say electorate allowance, don't be mistaken into thinking there are restrictions on how you spend that or that it goes into a separate bank account or that it has to be accounted for in some way. It's just called an electorate allowance and it's just paid at the same time. You know, it's just paid into your bank account. So it's just a different label on a pool of cash that's given to them. So it's $249,000 a year plus super. Plus super. I just give up. Like, it's just graft. Like, we actually have a word for this in the English language for this kind of political behaviour, and that word is graft. You know? Like, what is she consulting about exactly? Do people think that her consulting role is somehow separate from her parliamentary duties? Like, if you were a biofuels company, why would you specifically seek out the consulting services of an active member of parliament, a person who is in a position to legislate in your interests? It really is, it really is phenomenally, uh, it's almost unbelievable. But there are, so there are many, many parliamentarians who have trusts. Right, and the concept—the concept of parliamentarians having trusts—stems from this idea that if you're a parliamentarian and you're going to be making decisions, then your assets, whether that be property that you own, or um, shares in your superannuation fund, or a company that maybe you set up before you went into parliament, whatever it might be, that you shouldn't be influenced by what's going on in those things in your decision-making and therefore putting them into a trust that you can benefit from, again, when you come out of Parliament, is a, is a reasonable thing to do. There's a reasonableness to that, right? I don't say I'm not an absolutist here. You've got to, you've got to say to people, you know, you don't have to give up everything about your life to become a parliamentarian. If you've built a business, you should be able to put it into trust and have it operate on your behalf. But you shouldn't be able to actively consult for other companies. You shouldn't be able to actively use your position as a senator to further benefit yourself simply using a trust as a vehicle. That That's actually counter to the reason why these things were set up in the first place. Like it runs in the opposite direction to why parliamentarians have trusts. They're there to make sure that parliamentarians are not making decisions against the interests of the nation but in their own interest. Here you have a senator doing paid work but having the money paid into the trust rather than to her directly so that she can say, oh, well, the money goes to the trust. Well, hang on a minute. You're still sitting in the Senate doing work for another company. This is crazy. Oh, but I'm not employed by that company. I'm doing it for this trust and the trust is you know, billing, whoever they're billing. It's a, it's a massive misuse of, a, of something that was actually designed to strengthen our democracy and is being used to weaken it. Oh, it's just disgusting. It's disgusting. It disgusts me. It's just like it's so self-indulgent and I think that's what I find so enraging 
that that it's all about Holly Hughes. Did she? And not for one moment has the senator from New South Wales gone. What's my actual responsibility to the Australian people here? What is the sacred trust that they impart in me when they vote Liberal or for one of those Liberal feeder tickets like the United Australia Party, which is Clive Palmer? Like they all just meant one nation. They just feed preferences to Liberal Party. So if you're voting for them, you're voting for Holly and friends. At no point has she gone, yeah, this is this is not okay. Like I'm actually here to work full time in the interest of my constituents. Because what's the impact on her time here? The consultancy we services? Don't we don't know. Well, we, d- we don't know. But we're subsidising this biofuel company because the time she is supposed to be spending as a parliamentary representative, which as far as I'm, I was aware was a 24-hour-a-day job because it is about representing people. Well, yeah, this is interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, parliamentarians do get leave, but there, there's been no reference to the idea that she's taken leave and done this work in her leave period. Um, you know, like maybe she did. Maybe she did. Maybe and, she did. But, you know, Maybe let's... she did because God knows if you have the responsibility of sitting in a room that literally decides whether Australia is going to help save the planet or not or go to war or not or lie to an ally or not or spend $90 billion on submarines, surely when you have a holiday what you should do is spend all of that time doing full-paid professional work at consultancy level for a private corporation. That seems like a really, really good way of... Of, of recharging and refreshing over well, the holiday period. I, maybe she's I, just superior to me. Maybe, uh, maybe look, I've got this wrong. Maybe she is some kind of superhuman capacity generator where she can just work all day, every day for a limitless number of companies, all in a really productive capacity, and this is all above board. And the fact that she just gets paid through the nose for, you know, and I'm sure she can compartmentalise her jobs. I'm quite sure... Holly Hughes, that at no point have you ever gone, mm, is this about the fact that I'm a senator and can curry favour? Absolutely love, I'll back you in there. At no point was this a conflict of interest for you. At no point did you even question why they had invited you to do this particular work. Absolutely. So... <laughs> Uh, at, at the at the risk at the risk of keeping you fired up, uh, I, I do want to move on because uh, there, there is there is another uh, there is another union story that I want to touch on here. And better have a happy ending, Ben. I'm in a mood. <laughs> I can tell. I'm in a mood, Ben. Uh, I'm, I'm in a mood. People, I'm going to say to people, jump onto megaphone and look for the country road uh, petition. Uh, and if, if ever there's a reason to join a union, this is a story that has come up where country road workers who predominantly it's a female warehousing staff, so predominantly women in this workforce. Now, country road uh, are negotiating an EBA, the United Workers Union, uh, they've already had a day of industrial action Country Road's profits were up 44% in 2020. They received nearly $25 million in JobKeeper uh, from Holly Hughes' government. Uh, obviously, already a profitable company, but as we know, Holly's not, not, not opposed to super profits. Country Road's made a good profit. Now, they're a female-dominated warehousing staff van, and they're paid 
around $10 less per hour than the mostly male warehousing workers up the road. <gasps> what, Gosh, that never happens. Does that happen? A bit of gendered pay disparity. Apparently so. I know. Jeepers. United Workers Union are saying that the workers need a 90 cent per hour pay rise. The the company has only offered, uh, I think, less than 60 cents an hour. I mean, come on. If anybody's ever bought a piece of country road clothing or seen country road clothing in a shop, let me tell you, you're going to have to work a lot of extra hours at 90 cents to, to afford country road clothing. You know, it, we've got to back these workers in. Jump on to Megaphone, megaphone.org.au. Go to australianunions.org.au slash wow to join your union. Show your support for these workers because this is a case of profitable company not wanting to pay a decent pay increase uh, and also there is a gender equity element to this that I think is being underreported uh, and being being a bit um, being a bit shoved under the rug by the way Country Road is uh, having this story reported in places like The Australian and other Murdoch owned uh, media so oh no way I wanted really? to just bring that up for people because I think there is some misinformation about this and I think there's a lot more to that story than is being put out there Ben, can we talk? Can we talk about COP twenty six? Can we talk I about? Know, I don't know. I think maybe go. you want to lead the discussion because I'm getting those. You know, those stomach pains that I get when I get really fired up. Oh, they're gripping me. Oh, I can imagine. I can imagine. So, regular listeners of the show will know, and anyone who's paying attention will know that COP twenty six, which is the climate conference, uh, is taking place in Glasgow. Now, I'm going to start this with some good news and we're going to end this with some good news too. In, in the middle, it eh, might not be as good. But let's start with the good news about COP26. 90 countries, led by the USA, have signed an agreement to cut methane gas by 30% by 2030. They, they reckon that they're covering about 75% of the world's methane generation with these 90 countries and they're... They've made an agreement. They've made an agreement, uh, and it's called the Global Methane Pledge. Australia, of course, has joined the rogues gallery of China, Russia, and India in not signing on to the pledge. And it might become a bit more obvious why as we go through on this story. Methane, of course, is a byproduct of uh, liquid natural gas, coal, a whole range of other things. Intensive over-farming as well. Intensive over-farming as well. So Morrison (laughs) has not signed the agreement but has put Santos, the gas and oil company, in the Australian pavilion at COP26 in Glasgow Uh, Santos made record profits on the sale of our gas in October. Uh, They're buying an oil company called Oil Search uh, and they're pushing gas-fired carbon capture-based blue hydrogen. So previously, Van, you and I have talked about green hydrogen, which is where you use renewable energy to create hydrogen 
uh, to split the atoms in water to create hydrogen, and then you've got renewable energy. What Santos is doing is using gas-fired processes and then using carbon capture to offset the emissions that they've released uh, and calling it um, renewable hydrogen. Angus Taylor has been with the CEO of Santos in Glasgow putting forward this idea that that people around the world should come and invest in Santos and Woodside uh, and this idea of of blue hydrogen. Um, Malcolm Turnbull is in Glasgow as well uh, as Morrison and Angus Taylor. And Van Turnbull, as well as being former Prime Minister, is now the chair of uh, Fortescue Future, which is the green hydrogen company, right? So literally pretty, hilarious. Literally kind of, hilarious. <laughs> I'm loving it. I'm loving Kevin Rudd and Malcolm Turnbull. I think they should have their own show on the ABC. When I am queen, I shall make it so. <laughs> I love it. I love how now that they're out of politics, they're just they're in it for a good time, not a long time. And the idea of Malcolm Turnbull, probably the last actual Liberal in the Liberal Party, um, the last Liberal left in the Liberal Party now that the lights are out, like the idea that he has devoted himself to trolling Scott Morrison at the highest level, I think is admirable. Well, I think it speaks, I, I think, you know, the, the moments of admiration I occasionally have for the centre-right, and I do have them occasionally, that's a that's a pretty concrete one from me. Well done, Malcolm. Well done. Well, he, he's called the whole concept that Santos has pride of place a joke, you know, like the, so, what this boils down to, and and you know, there's some detail and technical stuff in here, and people can look this up. But you know, we've talked about how you make green hydrogen before, take renewable energy, whether it's from solar, from from wind or hydro, and you run it through an, an electrical process, which separates the molecules of water into hydrogen and oxygen. Right. That's renewable energy. That's what they're doing in Queensland. That's what they're trying to get going in Tasmania. What Santos and Woodside, right, who, Woodside, who, by the way, is buying BHP's petroleum assets, what they're trying to do is essentially kind of greenwash, really. They're, they're basically saying, we've got all this gas, right, all this gas. We've invested all this money into gas production. We've been selling gas to the world. We've made billions, like just in the last month, they've made billions and billions of dollars selling gas to the world. The world is saying, we're going to get off using your gas before you run out of gas. That's basically what they're hearing. They're hearing, we're making lots of money now, but we're still going to have the rights to sell this gas, Australia's gas, and we're not going to be able to do that because no one's going to buy it because they're all moving to renewables. So what are we going to do with all this gas, right? And, of course, we're not seeing any tax dollars here, by the way. This is this is one of the other things, too. There's not a lot of tax money coming our way from this gas. So what are they trying to, what are they trying to do? They're trying to find new ways to use this gas. And what's one of the ways they've discovered? Well, they can use the gas to fire the electrical processes to make hydrogen, right? And then they've got hydrogen, which is clean. So that's a clean energy source. Now they just need to figure out a way to offset the emissions from burning the gas to make the hydrogen. 
And so this is why they're so keen on carbon capture because carbon capture basically lets them fully exploit the gas wells that they have, the gas fields that they have access to, the assets that they own, at the same time as pretending that they're being environmentally friendly. It's a, to quote Malcolm Turnbull, a joke. Like, it's actually a joke to take what is potentially a real solution that is using renewable energy to make even better quality energy and export that to the world and instead go, ah, we're going to burn fossil fuels to make renewable energy and then we're going to have some mythical science offset the emission like that's uh, technology led it's going to be a technology led solution people were posting on twitter today a figure of um of spending on science and research in australia that actually pinpoints the moment that research funding in this country started to decline and it was when the liberal party got elected <laughs> like it's just it's just all a nonsense it's as much as a nonsense as the lies told to macron it's just politics of lying and it's really dangerous it's really dangerous for democracy because if people start going well they all lie anyway yeah i just expect lies it's lies 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 then people lose faith in democracy and then authoritarians come around and it's very difficult to get democracy back after a spell of authoritarianism tends to get a bit bloody and a bit messy, you know. And the reality is they're not all like this. There is a cultural problem in the Liberal Party. They've been in power too long. They think that no one's really going to hold them accountable. They think, you know, God is on their side. They have the next election in the bag and that there will be, you know, there will be no accounts to to settle, that they can just get away with this. And the thing is they've got to be cleared out. Like, yeah. they've got to and be cleared out. And Marcus Paul made the point that Santos has donated millions of dollars to the Liberal Party uh, in recent years. Um, you know, our good friend Marcus Paul on 2SM, Sydney Radio. We love him. We love um, him. And, and to have Santos be front and centre of Australia's contribution to the climate conference is really, like, it takes that, it takes that lying to a sort of delusional level. Like these are not stupid people who attend these things. These are world leaders. These are CEOs of major corporations. Major international scientists. Major international scientists, leaders of trade union movements. These are educated, informed, engaged people. And to have Santos be saying, invest in us because we're going to burn all the gas to make hydrogen but it's going to be environmentally friendly because science says we're going to capture the carbon emissions is and people just people must just like be torn between laughter and crying because at the same time you do have you know and and look i'm not backing one energy company over another here but you do have fortescue going hang on a minute we can do this with solar and wind and other people around the world going yeah you can make hydrogen with solar and wind and hydro you don't need to burn the gas to do that anymore like the technology is actually there to make this clean like the whole process clean like let's let's do that but no scott morrison angus taylor ceo of santos 
Oh, look, let if Angus Taylor's in, please yeah, let us burn our gas. If Angus Taylor is involved, I don't trust him. Like, just it, from everything, from those bizarre statements about Clovermore, the Lord Mayor of Sydney, they were traced back to his office, but mysteriously not to him. What a surprise! The grasslands, you know, the Watergate. Like again and again and again and again, there's an absolute nest of opportunism and profit, and Angus Taylor is involved. And it's just, I do not trust him for garbage. Well, on that note, I think we're going to end this episode with three very quick, very happy stories. Ben, do you want to tell us about something else that's happened at the climate conference? Okay, so they're going to stop deforestation and this is good news. This is massive, massively good news, as Ben well knows, given, you know, my connection to to the forests, um, the non hippie who loved forests, that would be me. Yeah, so uh, there has been a decision taken by um, a hundred, like at least a hundred countries, that they're going to they're going to stop deforestation practices um, by twenty thirty. So in the next nine years, deforestation is currently responsible for twenty five percent of um, of greenhouse gas emissions because you because forests are carbon pumps. Forests are better at taking up mangrove swamps. Mango mangrove forests are much better at sequestering carbon and sophisticated forestry management that looks at um, that looks at how we can use forests as carbon pumps. That's carbon capture, not massive gas-fired plants in the middle of the desert. That's not that's not the technology we need right now. No. Um, but what's amazing is- about this agreement is that not only is Joe Biden signed on. But Xi Jinping, um, who's the Premier of China, and also uh, Mario Bolsonaro, who is the disgusting authority and creep who runs Brazil, um, and one can only imagine the billions of dollars that had to be passed to Brazil to make them stop tearing the forest down, but that has been agreed. And um, areas that are going to be protected are not only the Amazon but the Siberian tiger um, and also the Congo Basin. The Congo Basin is actually the second largest uh, forest area in the world. And, of course, the issue is that a lot of forests, we've talked about it on the show about cut and slash and burn um, agriculture where you just cut down a forest, then you get one year of a crop and then you move on, but you've cut all the trees down. Um, and it's also um, crops like soy. Sorry, vegetarians, you're part of the problem. Um, palm oil, uh, which is in so many products, and beef, of course, yeah. and it's often beef for fast food. So as Ben has learnt, even though I am a meat eater, I do go for the Impossible Burger whenever I can in a fast food capacity because it tastes like meat and it's fantastic. And if it tastes just like meat and it's got that chemical in it that meat eaters live for, um, like it's a really small thing anyone can do. And I thoroughly recommend the Impossible Burger served at Boss Burger Ballarat, literally the world's greatest burger joint. Um, Ben will know this. charging people for all these ads. I just think think it's really important. If If companies are doing the right thing, like yeah. I'm going to say so. And yeah. for meat eaters out there who want to be more conscious about their consumption, an Impossible Burger is a good step forward, like it's a thing you can do. Um, banning palm oil is really important. Palm oil is killing the orangutans, which is terrible. There are apps you can get where you can scan barcodes and find out if something has palm oil in it. A lot of companies do advertise products that are palm oil free. Obviously, Ben and I, when we go, one of the reasons why we buy a lot of things at markets and it all, like – 
various other businesses is because they advertise themselves as proudly palm oil free because they put yeah. palm oil in food, they put it in shampoo, in soap and all these other things. And, you know, it's if you're like I'm totally overwhelmed by how awful the world is, yes, I am not like, you know, the capitalist system is the problem but unfortunately we still live in it. So consumer decisions do have an impact if even if it just means that you're just doing what you can in the process of a day it's an act of politicization responsibility that you carry that you influence your community with and carry over into the other parts of your life so i was really really you can imagine quite emotional about yeah. a commitment to stop deforestation apparently even australia agrees with that one absolutely even australia of. and Let's if you're know. i mean who knows i mean i don't trust scott morrison he says he agrees we'll probably yeah, wake up tomorrow well. and all the trees will be on fire and he'll be in hawaii Oh, no, he's done that before. <laughs> Hopefully he won't be PM by the time this comes into play. And if you own an ethical business who you think we might enjoy the products of, please feel free to contact us for potential sponsorship opportunities. <laughs> Um, and those of you who, like, I get contacted by a lot of people who listen to this show and know that I'm an environmentalist and it's, you know, meaningful and profound to me and go, I, I want to be part of something. I want to, um, you know, my people's kids are obviously totally freaking out about climate. Yeah. And there is a really productive thing that you can do uh, for the climate and climate policy, and that is to join our friends in the Labor Environment Action Network. So if you would like environmentalism to be concrete and tangible and part of government policy in a major party that actually wins government and can legislate and assign resources, um, we love the people from Lane. Uh, Felicity, who is the honcho of the Labor Environment Action Network, she's a really old friend of ours. I've known her from back in Wilderness Society days years and years ago. She's highly effective and they find ways for people who want to make a difference with policy to be involved. You know, if it, being involved in a political party and doing that work is not your thing, which is fine, like it's not for everybody, um, we obviously recommend our friends, the wonderful Lee Eubank and pals um, at Friends of the Earth who run the Act on Climate Vic campaign and who are, you know, the kind of activists who are responsible for putting things like massive renewables projects in front of Labor governments and getting them to legislate them. So they are two organisations you can be involved in right here, right now, uh, and give your skills, time, talent, whatever they are, to the cause of environmentalism in this country. And of course, join your union. There's another area where unions are doing the hard, hard, hard work of finding the new jobs, what are the new industries, what are the skills, what are the training. So you can jump online, australianunions.org.au slash wow uh, there as well. So there's Lane, there's Friends of the Earth, and then there's, of course, your union. Ben, I want to uh, talk about another piece of good news that really I think the whole country woke up to an enormous sense of collective relief uh, when – the four-year-old girl from WA, Cleo, uh, was found uh, alone in a house in Carnarvon, 900 kilometres north of Perth, at 1am this morning. In a uh, locked house, yeah. In, in a locked house. Uh, she Apparently uh, the police had to break in uh, and the, her first words were, my name is Cleo. Uh, and she's been returned to her family after 18 days uh, of them not knowing where she was, nobody knowing where she was. Um, 
A 36-year-old man has been taken into custody in connection with the case. Uh, of course, we don't ever want to prejudice a, a judicial process through anything we might say on the week on Wednesday. Um, so it's really important that even when we're online, talking on social media, whatever it might be, uh, that we're very conscious about that. For justice to be served, people have to have an impartial process. Um, obviously, this or is... cases can get thrown out of court. That's so right. if you don't want to be part of perhaps you know, like somebody who would have otherwise been found guilty through a judicial process, and this is speaking generally, yes. if you prejudice that case, you know, that person, guilty or not, can be let go. So don't do that. Also, can we have a bit of a discussion about who found Cleo? The cops found Cleo. An absolutely immense task force that was not only comprised of officers of the ground on the ground who were also coordinating an amazing group of volunteers who literally left no stone unturned to look for that little girl, but also a vast team of analysts sorting through all kinds of technical information. Premier Mark McGowan thanked them, um, you know, the, the chief superintendent of the police thanked them, like the incredible work done. This was not solved by people on the internet speculating about who was and wasn't guilty. Like yeah. this is not an internet sleuth victory, friends. It's an internet sleuth defeat because the parents of that little girl who have literally had the 18 worst days of their lives were subjected to the kind of social media scrutiny that, let's face it, you know, people like me see way too much of um, and it's it's disgusting and disgraceful. And if you know somebody who participated in that, like who attacked the parents or was doing a bit of fact-free internet sleuthing based on internet rumours, maybe have a talk to them about the responsibility that comes with publishing because the internet is a publishing medium and just as we wouldn't want newspapers to publish lies, 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 damn lies and rumours, we don't want our friends or family members to do that either, especially not to a family who have literally been to hell and back. And what an absolute miracle that little girl was found. What an absolute victory for the police and the hard work of experts. You know, we live in a society that tips a bucket on experts all the time. And I've got to say, out and out, Ben, I am pro-expert. I love professionally trained people. I love highly educated, targeted specialists in absolutely every area of life. And I found that little girl and she was alive and well. And the, the story of the fact that the cops just burst into tears when they found her, when they knew that they had her and she would be okay, like what a moment. And it's that sense of, you know, that sense of value that we place on children. You know, all children deserve to be protected. All children deserve to be found if they go missing. And all children deserve that level of attention in a community. And I think it's been a really powerful moment for us to think about as Australians how important those values of child protection and safety, children being seen and heard and supported, like I think that's actually going to have quite an impact on us going forward. I think so too. I'm really, uh, really glad for that family, but also for the whole Australian community because the outpouring of relief that has just flooded social media, the mainstream media, the you know, my people have raised it with me today. Did you see that they found Cleo? Um, you know people who have had no connection to that family, who've never been to WA, um, but who really felt a sense 
of hope as a result of this outcome. Um, and I really I, I agree with you, Van. I hope that this is something that we take forward as a nation where we respect professionals, we respect the professionalism of, and the expertise of the people who know what they're doing, that we back them to do it. Acknowledging not every call is the right one, but, you know, the people who dedicated 24 hours a day for 18 days to find this this little girl and save this little girl, like, let's be honest, that's what we all know, that's what's happened. They've saved this little girl. Um, and that's an incredible, incredibly powerful and positive thing to have happened in Australia today, Wednesday, the 3rd of November, the year 2021. I think I think that's all we've got time for today on the week on Wednesday. We've covered a lot of ground. We've gone from Glasgow to Carnarvon. We've gone from Sydney to Dalesford and all around the globe. Uh, Van, thank you so much for today. I know there's been a lot of emotional emotional topics that we've talked about. I love you so much. I miss you so much. Oh, I love you too. You know, it's it's funny. People were like, they're not saying they love each other at the end of the brook. Are they okay? And it's like it, our separation over the four and a half months where we didn't see one another was so hard, so hard, people, that we struggled to keep it together. Sometimes you just can't let yourself get that emotional. Otherwise, the podcast just becomes lots of sobbing. And now things are a bit easier um we are of course very excited to be able to just sort of return to um, a more even keel but i love you benny i think you are literally the best look after the talk i will i love you darling Bye. bye